The 2005 movie Crash was directed by Paul Haggis and won the Oscar for Best Picture. It opens with a commentary on what it's like to live in Los Angeles. Detective Graham Waters, played by Don Cheadle, opens the movie with these words. In any real city, you walk, you brush past people, and people bump into you. In LA, nobody touches you. We're always behind this metal and glass. I think we miss that touch so much that we crash into each other just so we can feel something. In the summer of 1969, the lives of strangers intersected with each other in many ways. The world watched as the eagle landed on the moon on July 20th. In mid-August, Woodstock took place in Bethel, New York. And in between, the Manson family was causing trouble and taking the lives of strangers in Los Angeles. This is Saints and Sinners, True Crime in the History of the West. California Manson Country, Part 2, The Summer of 69. dressed in blood wrote over the course of my life I've been to lots of places shadowed places where things have gone wrong sinister places where things still are I always hate the sunlit towns full of newly built developments with double car garages and shades of pale eggshell surrounded by green lawns and dotted with laughing children those towns aren't any less haunted than the others they're just better liars before Tex Watson Linda Kasabian Patricia Krenwinkle and Susan Atkins climbed the fence leading into 10050 Cielo just after midnight on August 9th. Jay Sebring, Sharon Tate, Wojciech Frykowski, and Abigail Folger were all friends, and they were living their best lives, lives that would soon be cut short. A fifth person was killed by the Manson family that night, Stephen Parent. He had only been at the guest house across the pool from the main house on Cielo for a little under 45 minutes before he left and met up with his doom as he was exiting the property. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Stephen Parent lived in El Monte, California, about 15 miles southeast of Los Angeles. His mother was originally from Illinois, his father from Wisconsin. The family moved to San Diego and then to El Monte. By 1969, they were living at 11214 East Bryant Road. Stephen was born on February 12, 1951. He was a recent high school graduate and was planning on attending Citrus Junior College in the fall. He stood six feet tall, weighing 175 pounds. His friends called him Carrot Top. On Friday, August 8, 1969, Stephen left home around 7.50 in the morning to begin work at Valley City Plumbing. He usually came home for lunch and he had asked his mother Juanita to iron and lay out clothing for him so when he returned home after finishing the day at Valley City, he could quickly change and be on the way to Jonas Miller's stereo, his second job. Parent was described by fellow employees as clean-cut, intelligent, and a good worker. In late July, Stephen was driving his father's white 1966 Nash Ambassador, the same car he would lose his life in, on Beverly Boulevard when he picked up a hitchhiker named William Garretson. This seemingly innocuous act would set the wheels in motion to alter the course of his life. Garretson, an Ohio native, had only been in town a short while, and ironically, 
He had also been hitchhiking a few weeks prior to that when he was picked up by Rudolf Altabelli, a manager and producer who owned the house at 10050 Cielo. The house was built in 1944, but he had purchased it in the early 60s for $86,000. Altabelli was renting it out to director Roman Polanski and his wife Sharon Tate. Rudy normally resided in the guest house, but had hired Garrison to watch over the grounds and live there while he went to Europe that summer. Back to the day, Stephen picked up Garrison on Beverly. After dropping Garrison off at the Cielo property, the caretaker told Stephen to feel free to drop by any time he should be in the area. August 8th had been a normal Friday for Stephen. He worked his shift at Valley City, followed by Jonas Miller. After clocking out at the stereo store, he stopped by Dale's service station in El Monte around 11 p.m. to chat with the brother of a girl he had dated. He asked the boy if he wanted to go for a ride. The boy declined. From there, he made an innocent decision that would result in tragic consequences for him. He headed to 10050 Cielo Drive. Stephen had a Sony AM-FM Digimatic solid-state clock radio he wanted to try to sell to William Garrettson. He arrived on the property around 11.30 p.m., noticing Abigail Folger and Sharon Tate in the main house as he made his way to the guest house. Upon arrival, he asked Garretson who the pretty ladies were in the house and then showed Garretson the radio. Garretson passed on the purchase but offered his guest a can of beer, which Stephen accepted. Stephen also used the guest house phone to call a UCLA student by the name of John Friedman. He was building Friedman a stereo. It was 12.15 a.m. when Stephen unplugged the Sony clock radio, wrapped the cord around it, tucking it under his arm and bidding Garretson farewell. He left the guest house, headed for his car, his father's white 1966 Nash Ambassador, in the driveway. Stephen got in the car and headed slowly down the driveway toward the gate that exited the property. It was a simple gate made of chain link with a small call box next to it and a wooden slatted fence on either side. The gate at that property today stands about 15 feet from where that gate was. It's currently an imposing brick and wooden security gate to protect the large mansion built in the 90s when the original house was torn down in 1994. The driveway had a curve in it so Stephen couldn't see the gate until he had rounded the house and garage at Cielo. The closed gate was in sight and just as he rounded the garage, he saw a scraggly 20-year-old Tex Watson, one of the few male members of the Manson family, dropped down from the fence with a buck knife in one hand and a large gun in the other. Three young, long-haired women were climbing the fence and dropped down behind Tex, just about 30 feet from the gate. Tex ran up to Stephen's car and ordered him to stop. Stephen pleaded with him, Please don't hurt me. I won't say anything. Watson at first slashed at Stephen, who instinctively held up his left hand to protect himself, causing a gash on his wrist that severed his wristwatch, causing it to fly into the back seat where it would be found later that morning when the police beckoned to Winifred Chapman's frantic phone call. Watson then took his gun out and fired three times, hitting Stephen in the left cheek and twice in the chest. The two latter wounds were fatal. Watson then pushed the car back up the drive, away from the gate. The next morning, Winifred Chapman would walk past Stephen as he lay slouched over in the Nash Ambassador. She wouldn't notice him there. For her, at that point, it was a regular workday where she would clean the house for Sharon. 
She would enter the house, not seeing Wojciech Prakowski and Abigail Folger laying dead on the lawn. She'd then find Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring dead in the living room. The phone didn't work. Tex had cut the phone line, so she ran frantically back down the driveway, passing again the Nash and Stephen Parent. She'd go out the gate, noticing this time a bloody fingerprint on the call box, presumably that of Susan Atkins, left there as the murderers were making their exit. Winifred ran to the Cobb house, the first door on the right, and knocked frantically. No answer. Mrs. Cobb would later be interviewed and admitted to hearing gunshots that night, which makes sense as Stephen Parent was shot less than 100 yards from her front door. But she hadn't thought it was anything other than just some kids playing. After all, these things didn't happen in Beverly Hills. Mrs. Chapman went to the next house and knocked on the door, and they didn't answer either. At the third house on the right, the owner, Jim Asent, answered to a frantic Chapman and she used the phone there to call the police. Recently there have been theories that Stephen was not the first victim at the Tate house that night, but he may have been the last. In these theories, Stephen was walking back to his car from the guest house and came upon the horrific slaughter already going on at the main house. Panicked, he literally ran for his life with a hopped up Tex Watson in pursuit, reaching the Nash and attempting to tear out of the property. In his desperation, Steve backed into the split rail fence and Watson caught up to him. It was then that Stephen pleaded for his life and that Watson went after him with the knife. Finding that it was difficult to achieve his goal with the knife while his victim was seated behind the wheel, Tex unloaded his gun three times into the boy. Whichever version is the correct one, the split rail fence was broken with chips of paint from the parent car found on the fence and pieces of the wood found under the back bumper of the car. It was agreed upon by the Manson family members present that Stephen did plead for his life with those exact words, leading anyone to wonder what he meant when he said, I won't say anything if he didn't see anything, as he wouldn't have if he had been the first victim. For Wilford and Juanita Parent, that Friday night was long and unnerving. Stephen had never stayed out all night and not come home. The police, upon finding Stephen on Saturday morning, did not locate his wallet or driver's license, so he was dubbed a John Doe. A reporter on the scene managed to make out the license plate of the car and had it run, finding out it belonged to a Wilford parent in Almonte. That reporter managed to track down the parent's parish priest and notified him that the dead John Doe might be Stephen Parent. While the priest was headed to the morgue on Saturday evening to possibly make an identification that would spare Wilford and Juanita, the parent family headed out to dinner, hoping that Stephen would be home when they returned. Instead, an El Monte police officer appeared and handed Wilford a business card with a phone number on it and instructed him to call. Wilford called the unidentified number and was stunned when he was connected to the LA County morgue. He was told the morgue had a body they believed was Wilford's son. The physical characteristics and clothing matched. The priest was also able to positively identify the parent's eldest son. That night, the parent family, minus Stephen, crawled into one bed and cried until the early hours. Another scenario in which the case was poorly handled by law enforcement. Stephen Parent was buried at the Queen of Haven Cemetery in Roland Heights on Wednesday, August 13th. Arroyo High School dedicated its 1970 yearbook to four students and a teacher, 
with Stephen being one of the students. Part of the memorial stated, life goes on with all its joy, sorrow, love, pain, and laughter, yet death continues. In 2009, Linda Kasabian, a member of the Manson family there that August night, participated in a documentary where she admitted for the first time that on Tex Watson's orders, she crawled over Stephen's dead body searching for a wallet and or money. This explains why no wallet or identification were found on him. What about the four friends who were also killed at the Tate house that night? Most people know much more about them than they do about Stephen. Wojciech Ferkowski was a friend of Rowan Polanski's. He was a Polish actor and aspiring writer. Recently, he had been dating Abigail Folger, also killed that night. Wojciech was asleep on the flag-draped couch in the living room at Cielo when Tex Watson, after having climbed through a kitchen window, came to the front door and let Patricia Krenwinkel and Susan Atkins into the house. Linda Kasabian was there that night as well. In fact, she was the driver on the way from Spawn Ranch to Cielo. She opted not to participate in the murders and to this day states she never even entered the house. She stood at the end of the driveway near the sidewalk to the front door and kept watch so she could warn the killers in case someone by chance had heard the gunshots that killed Stephen Parent and might be coming to check it out. Kasabian ended up being the star witness in the trial of the killers that would take place in late 1970 and early 1971. After all, she nearly saw it all that night. She wasn't in the house, so she couldn't see what happened there, but she heard it. And she was near the lawn when Wojciech Ferkowski and Abigail Folger both came running out of separate doors, trying to escape their fates. Abigail Folger was a socialite, volunteer, civil rights activist, and the great-granddaughter of J.A. Folger, the founder of Folger's Coffee. She was set to eventually inherit a lot of money. Tex reportedly woke up Wojciech, already pointing the gun at him and said, I'm the devil and I'm here to do the devil's business. The killers walked down the hall and past the bedroom where Abigail was still awake, laying on the bed and reading a book. They gathered her up as well and continued down the hall to the back of the house where Jay Sebring and Sharon Tate were both awake and having a conversation. They gathered everyone into the living room and began to tie them up. Sharon Tate was married to Roman Polanski and eight and a half months pregnant. She was an up and coming actress and by that time she had been in several films. She earned a Golden Globe nomination for her performance as Jennifer North in the 1967 film Valley of the Dolls. She was also in The Fearless Vampire Killers, several episodes of The Beverly Hillbillies, and had begun her acting career playing an extra in Barabbas starring Anthony Quinn. Most recently, she had acted in the film The Wrecking Crew starring Dean Martin. She performed her own stunts and was taught martial arts by Bruce Lee. At the time of her death, she was slated to work on a film called 12 Plus One and was excited to be working with the legendary Orson Welles. In 2012, I went back to LA with my brother and we visited Sharon's grave at Holy Cross Catholic Cemetery in Culver City. It also serves as the gravesite of her unborn baby, Paul Richard Polanski. It's in a beautiful green location with a relatively modest grave marker and a grotto nearby. Jay Sebring was an extremely well-known Hollywood hairstylist and had at one time been engaged to Sharon. When she met Roman a few years before, she broke off her engagement to Sebring, but they remained close friends. Jay's hairstyling clients included Warren Beatty and Steve McQueen. He flew to Las Vegas every three weeks to cut the hair of Frank Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr. 
At Kurt Douglas's request, Sebring did the hairstyling for the movie Spartacus. He was also a big factor influencing The Doors' Jim Morrison's free-flowing hairstyle. His business, Sebring International, was flourishing by the late 1960s with profitable salons in West Hollywood, New York City, and London. Sebring maintained a playboy lifestyle with high-profile Hollywood celebrities like Beatty among his closest associates. Sebring assisted with launching the film career of Bruce Lee after meeting him at the International Karate Championships in Long Beach in 1964. He introduced Lee to his producer Bill Dozier, who started Lee's career with the Green Hornet. Although not seeking an acting career himself, Sebring made a cameo appearance in the December 1966 episode of the TV show Batman. He played a character based on himself called Mr. Oceanbring. Sebring also appeared in a 1967 episode of The Virginian titled The Strange Quest of Claire Bingham, playing a frontier barber. Sebring also appeared as himself on the January 28, 1963 episode To Tell the Truth, he'd received three of four possible votes. Sebring was one of the people profiled in the 1967 cult documentary Mondo Hollywood. Bobby Boussoulet, a future member of the notorious Manson family, was also seen in it. Boussoulet was arrested for the murder of Gary Hinman two days before the Tate-LaBianca murders that took Sebring's life. Charles Manson was also present for the Hinman murder. In 2019, Quentin Tarantino released his latest film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Margot Robbie, and Brad Pitt. I've always appreciated Tarantino's work. He has a flair for the dramatically violent, but he writes some of the best dialogue in the business. The way his characters smoothly rattle off cleverly constructed lines often comes off like a Woody Allen film on steroids. One of the things I've appreciated most about Tarantino over the years is that his finger is firmly placed on the pulse of pop culture, in a contemporary sense to be certain, and even more specifically the pop culture of the late 60s and early 70s when he was growing up in Los Angeles. Several critics were slightly disappointed by the 2019 film set in 1969 LA. Many characters in the movie are based on actual people that were in Hollywood during that time. Most negative critiques of the movie were based for the most part on how the movie doesn't seem to stick to any particular story and at times feels flighty and unstructured. That's what I liked about it the most. To me, what Tarantino was going for was the feel of the end of the 60s, the contrast between the peace, love, and harmony that existed during the latter part of that decade and the ushering in of an era of distrust, fear, and violence. Tarantino shot at many of the actual locations where the story of these murders and the events leading up to them took place. He shot on Cielo Drive. Street lights were added to provide better lighting for the scenes where the killers were walking up toward the Tate residence. He included scenes at the actual El Coyote restaurant on Beverly Boulevard where Tate, Folger, Frakowski, and Sebring had eaten earlier in the night before they returned to Cielo. I've eaten there several times and it's some of the best Mexican food I've ever had. The restaurant still looks almost exactly like it did in 1969. The table they are sitting at in the movie is the actual table where the four sat and ate their last meals on the night of the murders. Knowing the details of the crime, I was wondering how Tarantino would finish the film. In previous movies he had done including historical events such as Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained, he employed revisionist history, and I knew that he'd likely use that technique in this his newest film as well. I'm glad he did. 
Before the killers left that night, Jay Sebring had a rope placed around his neck, had been shot once, and stabbed seven times. Sharon Tate had been stabbed 16 times with the rope around her neck as well. Furkowski had run out the front door and had been beaten with the butt of the gun by Tex Watson, for which he had 13 lacerations on his head. He was also stabbed 51 times and shot twice. Abigail Folger, who managed to escape and run down the hall and out the back door by the pool, had been stabbed 28 times by Patricia Krenwinkel and Tex Watson. The killers showed no mercy that night. William Garretson was in the guest house while this was going on, less than 50 yards from where Abigail Folger was killed. He emphatically claimed that he never heard anything. The next night, Charles Manson took several of the family members, including Leslie Van Houten, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Tex Watson to the residence of Lino and Rosemary LaBianca in North Hollywood. There they tied up Lino and Rosemary and killed them as well. Lino had 10 stab wounds and the word war carved into his stomach. Rosemary had 41 stab wounds, most inflicted posthumously. The killers wrote several things, including helter-skelter and blood all over the house. The motivation in Manson's mind for the killings of the Tate residents ultimately stemmed from his feeling like an outsider in Hollywood and someone who was never given a true shot at the music business. He used the idea of helter-skelter to rile up the family into committing the murders to start a race war. The motivation for the LaBianca murders? He was once at a party next door to the LaBiancas and supposedly Lino did nothing more than to come over and tell them to turn the music down. The house where the LaBianca murders happened still stands today and looks very much the same as it did in 1969. The killers weren't caught for several months. Susan Atkins had been charged for the murder of a man named Gary Hinman and confessed to her cellmate that she had killed Sharon Tate. From then on, it snowballed to their eventual capture, trial, death penalty verdict. And later on, that verdict would be repealed and they would all receive life sentences. Leslie Van Houten, Tex Watson, and Patricia Krenwinkel are still alive and in prison. Susan Atkins died in 2009 of a brain tumor. Charles Manson died in Corcoran State Prison in 2017 at the age of 83. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood ends with the murders being averted, and we see one last time Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring, played by Margot Robbie and Emile Hirsch, respectively, who invite Leonardo DiCaprio's character Rick Dalton into the house on Cielo. We get to see the start of what it might have been like if things had turned out differently, if the world hadn't lost so much that night. I'm Chad Mortensen. Thank you for listening to Saints and Sinners, True Crime and the History of the West.